The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode 39 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factor Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is the great Adam Deitch. Adam is a prolific drummer, composer, producer, co-band leader. He's also an educator. He has a great educational site called Deitch Academy. Check that out, where he teaches a lot of um, you know, funk and hip-hop and jazz uh, basics and some more detailed stuff on soloing. It's a really, really nice instructional course. Go check that out. Again, that's the Deitch Academy. And also, um, he's always working on new projects. So this conversation talks about everything from how he composes music and then selecting his band members and how he's, you know, just keeps himself constantly busy. We, Of course, we talk about some gear and we did take a pretty deep dive into you know, the classics of hip hop and funk. So let's get into it. The great Adam Deitch. You're in Denver. Yeah. For about five, six six years. How was the pandemic there? Uh, Luckily, one of the clubs stayed open. Um, Cervantes, which is owned by my friend Scott Morrow, who's a big supporter of all the music in Denver. And he loves watching groups kind of, take shape in his club and then go on to red rocks and that kind of thing. So he really helped us out with that and kind of kept the club open. And I basically had one or two shows per month at that club during the whole pandemic Mm. and social distanced and, and, you know, about 40 people in a thousand seat room, but there was still something to look forward to. (laughs) Yeah, so I had the gigs, and I started the uh, Deitch Academy, which is like a lesson site. Yeah, it's my own, my little Drumio. Yeah, yeah, definitely want to talk about that because I, I dug through the whole site. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, I did that. I did a bunch of private lessons, a bunch of online Zoom lessons that really went well. I really enjoyed. I met a bunch of great drummers and had some young kids, nine year olds. Yeah, I haven't. I never really taught. Uh, kids before that so that that was also a fun experience and watching them come back next week and be excited about it and they learn what you taught them last week and all that stuff you know all that mm-hmm. fun stuff, so. did you have you always taught some or, or is it was it just a necessity have i ever always have always, you always taught lessons was that always something you did or was that just something recent um, yeah i was on, on the faculty at the new school in new york when i lived there and okay. I was I was an adjunct professor where I'd, they'd see like a list of musicians in New York and kids would pick you based on this, you know, if they knew who you were or whatever. And every semester I'd have two to three students, college students, and that was a good uh, experience. A couple of those kids became, you know, well-known drummers and got out in the world and did their thing, and which is always a good feeling. And uh, my parents are both, uh, college professors and my mom did elementary school for years for her whole life and has her master's in teaching so i grew up in a, a very a teacher household you know and and that's uh so it's kind of fun for me to take the parts that i learned from them that they do well and then add a little of my flavor into teaching mm. so how much of your upbringing was self-taught versus them teaching you specifically i mean them both being music teachers and drummers and piano players i had tons of lessons available um their friends uh were in their bands were all all great musicians and they would show me things so it was a constant learning environment and then it was like i shut everything they tried to teach me out and i just wanted to play with records and play with hip hop records and kind of do it my own way. And they, they let me do my thing and didn't really f- force me, you know, do your drum etudes this, this week, you know, it wasn't like that kind of house, you know, it was like, if that's what you're into, if you want to play along with public enemy and KRS one records all day, go ahead, you know? And that to me was rebelling, but still practicing. Yeah. Yeah. You probably don't, didn't realize how much they were teaching you by letting you do that. (laughs) They're, they're, they're just the ultimate with, with just, uh, letting you find your path. Nice. Well, let's talk about, I feel like you're always starting new projects. 
what is the current new project? Is it because there's I don't know which is the Butterfly Quintet, and I saw there's a there's a Word Trio record that just came out. You've got your own quartet. What's yeah. the latest? Uh, well, you know, during the pandemic, there was a bunch of like untapped talent. Well, talent, you know, really talented individuals and good friends of mine that I never got a chance to play with in a setting sort of like with the weather report uh, setting, except two horns instead of one. So no guitar. All my bands have guitar. It was fun to be in a band without guitar. And uh, Break Science kind of evolved into Butterfly Quintet with horns. And uh, we have Dom from Big Gigantic, who's great. And yeah, so that's the Butterfly Quintet. And we're, we we cut that record. I found a great engineer um, and also a good friend in Denver named Josh Fairman, who has recorded about six or seven different projects of mine over the past two years. Uh, maybe more. Um, but, you know, we have a group called Nightcap, which is a, a trio, a sort of like neo-soul jazz trio the style of Kiefer and Robert Glassberg, I guess, you know, to pigeonhole it. A little more electronic-based. But uh, that's coming out. And then, you know, the Butterfly record's coming out soon. We got a bunch of gigs. Um, the quartet, we cut right after we cut the Lettuce record, which is the next Lettuce record coming out. Um, Dr. Claw, which is uh, New Orleans-like funk with Ian Neville and Nick Daniels and Nigel Hall and some other guests. So, um, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff happening. And then my, my solo stuff, which is like production-based, Jay Dilla-based stuff around playing all the instruments and sampling and stuff. Man, how do you keep track of it all? <laughs> uh, I have a good manager. You know, <laughs> uh, Hillary Clinton is her name, actually. And uh, she's an amazing manager, and she helps organize all the releases. And, you know, okay, this has to get mastered. This album cover has to be chosen. The, this merch idea for this album you know, all those things that come with a release that a label would just charge you an arm and a leg for we just kind of talk about it and do it ourselves and and uh and you know my goal is to have these releases stay up with my output because I, I have a lot of ideas and tunes that i write that i just want to continue releasing so until these albums are out and organized in an organized fashion i can't it's hard for me to work on new stuff Mm. so uh you know it's good to have a good manager for that so are you you're the band leader for all these various projects i wouldn't say that um you know for obviously for the quartet that's my thing with my name on it but uh no they're they're all co-led they're all friends that i i know the co-leading thing has worked for me mm. um the uh you know the lettuce idea of all of us owning the company and and break science with it being a total 50 50 split has ended up being better in the long run you know and uh of course you're gonna run into some arguments and some stuff but most at the end of the day we all have the same vision for what you know if you align with people's visions and they're good people and you've hung out with them through the recording process of the record and and you know a couple of the bands i haven't even done a gig with yet like the nightcap project the trio thing we haven't even done a live show really you know yet so but i already know that these guys are completely 100 percent into it and understand how it's going to fit into my schedule and they're cool with that and it's it's a great vibe so i just you know i enjoy doing new projects with people that that match my intensity and and my eagerness to get the music out so where's the material come from? Is everyone writing? Everyone's writing. Um, I do a large amount of writing. It's like a tsunami of, of tunes. Mm. And uh, then they usually come back with, well, we got these tunes, you know, and I, lo I love that, the pushback, you know. I'm willing to write as much as needed, you know, and um, I'm getting to a point now where I feel fairly confident if it's in my bag, you know. I, I can't go write an Ariana Grande tune not the you know that's going to be a hit song all across the world but if it's a funky tune with some cool chords and a nice melody that people can walk away humming and a great groove and a great bass line like i that's a fastball down the middle for me so i enjoy that so for what is what is a finished tune for you is it a bass line a groove chords and a melody i mean how, how finished do you give it to the guys an a section with a melody yeah, and a great groove. 
um, a B section, hopefully. If you're going to get fancy, you're going to add a solo section, which is slightly different. You know, a bridge, which might be totally different from those or not. You know, I look at tunes like, you know, there's James Brown tunes where it's like, uh, you know, a big payback where it's got the or- the intro groove and then it's got the big main groove and that hangs for a while. That's, I love that kind of song form. Um, you know, other things like, like a classic Maceo tune or, so I, you know, it depends on, on the format. I, I just like simple formats that work live and are like overly analyzed or thought about in the studio and are, are impossible to play live. You know, I, I think of things ahead of time so we can play the record and it's not going to be like, oh, we have this orchestral breakdown, this part that's in thirteen eleven, and mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> you know, which is cool for other things, but I just like to be able to play it all live and have it make sense. So then how does it evolve? Do, do the do the harmonies change as, once you get with the band? Do you give like skeleton chords? I mean, how does the tunes evolve? I, I do demos on Pro Tools. I spend okay. all day and all night on, on Pro Tools um, if I'm inspired for, uh, with a song, you know, and I'll record it as best I can, you know, using some looped sections. I'm obviously not going to play bass for five minutes straight through, so I'll play, you know, a couple bars, loop that, and then I'll go to the other section, play a couple bars, and sometimes I'll play the bass for a hundred bars till I find those two bars that are really happening. Mm-hmm. And I'll chop those and put those, you know, layer them next to each other. And I want to send the guys a demo that they get excited about, you know, whoever I'm working with that they go, wow, this is a great tune. I want to play on this. Mm-hmm. That's the goal. That's, that's, that's the win. And um, if they're into it, and they want to cut it, they're going to have that energy and they're going to learn the parts and maybe add something extra. I'm always open to them. Do you program the drums or you you cut some live drums on top of it? I've done both. I've had better luck with live drums on demos because uh, it just adds to the vibe and it's me and it it just feels better when they're hearing it for the first time. They're like, ooh, I can imagine... The chords, you know, I want to play on that or, or that, you know, instead of that being a synth melody, it'll be a sax and a trumpet or something, you know. Mm-hmm. So that, that's that's my goal with, with writing and, and, you know, making sure that I have as many live instruments like a real Rhodes, a real bass, real drums, um, guitar, you know, as opposed to all MIDI instruments, which ends up sounding like a robot demo, which is cool if, that, if you don't play anything else. But for me, it's like it's worth the time to try to beat out the three chords on guitar because mm-hmm. it'll just sound better to the guitar player. And he'll go, oh, I, I hear what you're trying to do there. You know, <laughs> like Schmeens from Lettuce. That's kind of mm-hmm. how he approaches the demos, you know. So has there ever been like an idea that you, you kind of get halfway there and you're like, ah, this isn't working. Let me can this and just bag it like a project, not necessarily a tune, but like, has there been like, Oh, I want to do this, I, this project. And then, or do you, do you take it all the way to the end? Um, if I love something, I'll take it, you know, I'll take it to the, uh, you know, to the recording process, at least, you know, Mm -hmm. I've never gotten to a point where I recorded a whole album and went, this sucks, you know, or like Mm -hmm. if I'm going to the studio and I'm paying studio time, I feel very confident about, the players and the tunes and the studio engineer and where we're at, you know, and that's the only way I'll, I'll spend my own money is if I feel confident on all those factors. Mm-hmm. And that's worked out for me, you know, cause back in the day I had bands that were great with great tunes. And I was like, Oh, I probably shouldn't spend, you know, $2,000 to record this band because it's a lot of money. And you know, what if I don't make it back? And, you know, but now if I can go back and tell my young self, just spend that money and go in the studio with those guys and, and record that thing, everything else will fall into place. Mm. So what do you have at home that you do demos with? Uh, my Pro Tools. Do you have like a, like acoustic kit mic'd up at all yeah, times? I have, I have three kits in my basement. Mm. Okay. What are the kits? Uh, I have Altama. 
Are they I, like, I have this have a funky kit, which is like a Frankenstein kit um, of different drums they've sent me over the years that I just love. And uh, I have a 60s kind of 20-inch boomier, jazzier kit. And then I have a, uh, a baby junk kit with like a floor tom for a bass drum and a 10-inch snare and... Mm some weird hats with holes in them like they're this big you know that just it's perfect for like a little quest lovely breakbeat kind of vibe thing you know jungle drumming type kit you know so do ideas come to you when you're at the kit or do you hear an idea and you then you know which kit to go to that's a great question Uh, a lot of it is me sitting down on one of them and playing for a while and having no agenda Mm mm-hmm I might just, you know, try to blow some Aaron Spears chops for a minute just to get my arms warm and tire out, tire myself out a little bit. So I'm not antsy on the kit trying to play too many fills. So I'll just start off just chopping relentlessly 30 second. How long can I keep 30 second notes going? (laughs) Different combos, you know, and still come out on one, you know, that kind of just a game. Just like it's like Guitar Hero or something, you know, Mm. Um I'm hopefully trying to pull some of these things out at lettuce shows, but not too much of it. Um, but then you eventually f- fall into a groove, right? After you do that. Right. You know, right. Your arms get a little tired. And I feel like I want to lay a groove. Man. And that groove that happens after that initial energy outburst is usually attuned to me, you know? And I'll, I feel like a lot of drummers do come up with those grooves, but they don't record them on their phone. They don't take them seriously. Oh, I had a great groove at, at, at my shed session today, but I didn't record it. He's like, if you don't record it, how do you write that tune? Because that's that beat. It could be the the great, you know, the gravy. It could be like the rice that everything is put on top of, you know, mm-hmm. the pasta. <laughs> so, so uh, it's all food. It's all cooking, man. I'm always going back and forth. Right. So what do you do? You just like pull up the voice memo app or something and just get it down. doesn't matter what the quality Absolutely. really. That or I, I do the video. I'll do the video um, just to, so I can remember what it, what the group looked like and the way the sun was shining through the window that day or whatever, whatever. So I can remember it. I literally have to go through my phone and I have about 500 voice memos and videos of like grooves that should be lettuce tunes or someone else or, or one of these other project tunes. Mm. Oh, I also cut another record. Uh, it's called uh, mountain lion with two of the guys from Motet, Joey Porter on keys and Garrett Sayers on bass. Who's like just a phenomenal bass player. And we never got to really play together. And Schmeen's from lettuce is in that as well. And it's sort of a, another collaboration project that wouldn't have happened if the pandemic never happened. How did that come about? You just like reached out like, Hey, you want to do something? And then you're off to the races. Yeah. Well, we had that opportunity to play at Cervantes over the break, you know, at the club and do a couple of hits and they were really great and they felt really great. You know, playing funk in a hornless situation was different for me. So I was always writing for horns and horns and this horns and that. And so like, play grooves where it's basically like you know the herbie approach which is like you're not you know you although even though herbie had a sax player he had benny mopin on all his records all his funk records but uh i guess you know the meters were a hornless funk band um prince's stuff is for the most part mostly synth horns and uh, so we're incorporating the vocoder and that, that sort of thing. So yeah, that's a different, a whole other sound, a different project. So I've got to have different instrumentation and slightly different types of songwriting. And the instrumentation to me dictates the songwriting and, and the players and what they're capable of. Mm. So go back to when you're, you're, you get that initial idea at your, your kit. Are you already hearing bass lines and stuff at that point? Are you humming to yourself or does that come later? Yeah, I'm definitely hearing bass lines in my head, either right after I play the groove or I'll listen to the voice memo and automatically start humming Mm. a bass line. And then I'll go to the next voice memo and record that bass line. And I'll say, 
bass line for the beat that I just recorded, you know, the, <laughs> or something like that. Or, and then the next voice memo might be horn line for that or guitar part, you know? So that's where I'm at with capturing those inspirational moments. Cause those are more, you know, those come to you naturally and, and, and they feel the most natural for people to play at the end of the day. So when do you know to take it to pro tools? When I'm getting, when I'm really excited, you know, it's like, I gotta get to pro tools now, whether it's three in the morning or mm. whatever, I, I gotta get, you know, some of them just, you know, if it's for a group and we're going to the studio soon, that's when I'm most at my highest peak of writing. Cause I'm, ex- I'm excited to go into the studio to play these tunes for possibly the first time. Like the entire Adam Dice Quartet record that we just cut, the guys had never really heard the tunes before. They got in. The horn players, or or, the keyboard player did his work, uh, did his homework. Will Blades, he actually heard the demos, but they didn't even listen to the demos. So I kind of get excited for that because it's kind of fresh. And I play with great musicians that can interpret very quickly and on the fly. And I trust their musical output. Do you give them charts or they they get... They listen, but they learn by ear. I had no charts and they were pissed. <laughs> <laughs> they were totally pissed. Um, they had to write Benny Bloom, the trumpet player who is in Lettuce and also in my court study. He, he literally had to sit there and chart on the session before each song, you know. He's cursing me out that whole session, but it, it, we were laughing. We were laughing about it. <laughs> oh, man. So... What I noticed about all your records is you mentioned it, the sound of the studio, the sound of the room, the experience of listening to it. It feels like it's just as intentional as the compositions and the playing. Like for your, for the quartet record, um, it's like a very ambient sound. I'm wondering what that inspiration was to go for like that, that kind of roomy sound. Yeah. For the quartet record, I was going 1968 Idris Muhammad. Mm. Um, uh, like the records that he played on before he was even doing so. I mean, he's got some solo records that, that are kind of that open sound. Definitely Rudy Van Gelder is my idol for jazz recording. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's like the, you know, the number one producer of jazz music, you know, of, the, of classic stuff. And you can hear all those Elvin records like, you don't hear any reverb, but then he hits hard and it reverb opens up because he had his high ceilings. And mm-hmm. so I was trying, obviously I was recording in like little Brooklyn studios that didn't have uh, high ceilings, but I try to recreate a little bit of that ambiance, you know, and, and try to get an old school reverb with, with a, a plate, like an actual plate reverb and not like a plug-in reverb thing, you know, plugins can be cool nowadays. I mean, that they're getting so, so deep with the plugins and to model after certain rooms and having mm-hmm. the same dirt as the rooms. I just like that old school, like, uh, you know, like the way Krungman obviously records their, their stuff is phenomenal. Dap Kings, um, Sharon Jones and, you know, Gabe Roth, the way they record, um, who else? Uh, yeah, there's, there's some like newer groups that, that are hip to that, 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 that use that sort of reverby vibe and, it makes me want to sample it and make beats out of it. Mm-hmm. Vibe, you know? Were you monitoring the reverb as you tracked or was that been post? That's uh, that was post. Um, we had the, we had the plate running for a lot of, you know, especially in the lettuce stuff, we had the plate in the studio on and in our, in our headphones. So we could actually hear and play with the verb, mm-hmm. you know? So you're not going to do that feel that goes, if you got that, verb in your ears and the compression you're gonna go do 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 but do you know something simple yep because you have you're hearing like this finished record almost demo you know sound in your in your cans you know which i'm a huge fan of because you hit differently with the compression on with the slight distortion on the snare bottom snare or like the jump mic which is captures the dirt of the room you compress that and it's got the and radio vibe you turn that up in your cans and 
all of a sudden you play a little differently. You play, you play more to the sound as opposed to trying to fit your acoustic clean drums to a sound after, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you do the same thing when you're doing like more like modern, real punchy sounding records? You, you have your cans sound as close to the finished product as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it makes such a difference. So what is the difference for you playing into a reverb versus playing into a real punchy compressor? Like, what do you do on the drums differently? I mean, it's different eras, one. Um, different tunings for the kits. Like, for reverb, I want the coded, you know, coded Evans classic jazz toms with a 14-inch floor and uh, less muffling in the kick, a little more tone, two ride cymbals, you know, for the reverby stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, there's a Bernard Purdy solo album. I forget what it's called, but it's got a song called Pretty Purdy. Oh, yeah. And it's like the reverb opens up on two, and it's like just the the penultimate 1968 drum sound, you know? Mm -hmm. There's nothing more amazing. And, and, you know, got to talk about Sissy Strut and the, the first meters record. The first Cool in the Gang record, like the early that stuff, it's all '60s tuning, '60s style drums, you know. And then when you go when you go tight, you go you're dealing with the '70s now, you know. If you're talking funk, you're talking, you know, early '70s James, which is like you know, say a lot on Black and Proud, like the, that era. Then you got mid '70s James, which is a little tighter, you know. You you're, you know, funky drummers more. Uh, I think that's early '70s. And then you, as you get into 75, 76, 77, you're moving towards disco. And then you're dealing with deep snares, no reverb at all. Mm-hmm. Added drums, tape drums, which is also super cool for, for certain tunes, you know? So each, uh, each, you write by era and you try to bring in a little bit of some modern shit after. But I like to kind of create for these projects based on like an era specific thing. Mm. I need um. I think was that pretty record called Soul Drums? Is there a, yeah, Soul Drums. That's yeah, it's him like looking up on a Blue Sparkle kit maybe or something like that. Oh yeah, I recommend <laughs> all, all your listeners to check out Soul Drums by Bernard Purdy. It, it's a funny record, and when it goes to just drums, you play that for your engineer when you go to make a record and say, "Make my drums sound like this." That's <laughs> right. how close they can get. <laughs> Uh, give me some recommendations for Idris Muhammad records. I think he is kind of unsung these days. Yeah, I was just talking to some. I'm drawing a blank. I was just talking to someone about. I was like, might have been an Instagram thread or a Facebook thread, and we were going crazy on um, "Ode to Billy Joe," which is a song that Idris is on. Is 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 to me the ultimate. Idris' performance in that style of 60s breakbeat. Yeah, but it's that it's that era of, of Idris. And uh, he played on Nautilus by Bob James, which is classic. And, and they're both similar beats. Um, but the Ode to Billy Joe is the one that Kanye sampled for Jesus Walks. I mean, you know, it's what, a huge hit. And it's all Idris, mm. you know. And he put like some like, auto-tune vocals on top of an Idris break. <laughs> and uh, it's got this giant buzz roll. You know, it's like that. He goes all the way to beat one with his like kind of press rolly slop thing that he does that's so incredible. And a lot of people just, they don't take their ghost notes and press rolls as as importantly, or they don't see them as, as bigger, big sounds. But to me, they're like, that's really what it is. You know, that's really what it's all about for that style. You know, mm. speaking of, of ghost notes, I've noticed on some of your lessons on Deitch Academy that you play the ghost notes kind of high. Is that because you're trying to replicate that compressed sound? Absolutely. You know, and I, and I grew up playing in like New York clubs where the sound guy, barely would even mic the bottom snare mic or you know just mm-hmm. like little clubs in new york they, they throw a mic on top and so it's like if you're not actively pressing into the drum to 
pull out those ghosts. Like no, every, people are just going to hear boop, got, got, boop, got, got. You might as well not even play them, you mm-hmm. know, like at that point, you know. So my thing was like, let me accentuate these because one, that's what I like when I'm sampling or like making, you know, that's what I like in hip hop are those ghost notes. And that's because it was sampled through an NPC and it has this like in, in compression in it that like brings out the, you know, of the snariness of it and the, the dirt of it, the bottom snare of sound, you know? Do you play that way when you're tracking as well to bring out the ghost notes or is that different for studio? Yeah. I mean, a lot of times with, with the compression that I have in my headphones um, and a little bit of, distortion I put on the bottom snare mic, I don't need to really accentuate them as loud because they're, they're getting pushed, mm. pushed through with the plug-in or whatever, you know? I wanted but, to talk uh, about, um, it's mostly a live thing where, where I, I really pull it out. Right, right. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. Let's talk about the difference between because the similarities and difference between hip hop drumming and classic funk drumming. Because a lot of times it's James Brown breakbeats, but how would you approach playing them? The two different situations. Uh, I mean, there's definitely you know there's a you know father son relationship mm-hmm. between funk breakbeats and hip hop drumming. You know and. You know, it's to, funk drumming is the forefather of hip hop style. You know, Questlove, who is by and far the most prominent hip hop drummer of our generation, uh, grew up playing along with Average White Band Records. You know, Steve Ferroni, you know, who was also my alma mater because I spent three years with them oh, in the right. early two thousands. Yeah. You know, playing with them, and I got to meet Steve and hang out with Steve, and I got yelled at by Steve. <laughs> Wait a minute, for what? For what? What are they yelling at you for? I mean, he came to a gig in LA and it was his first time seeing us. And I had took some liberties with the kick drum patterns. You know, I kept the hi hat and snare the same. I wasn't doing fills or splash cymbals or fusion fills, none of that. You know, I just kind of gave the kick drum patterns a little bit more of a Jay Dilla. That's what I was into. And that's when Jay Dilla was just coming into prominence. And I was getting into my, you know, hip hop style kick drum stuff, you know, and extra shuffle on it. And, and mm. a couple extra do, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. And he got pissed and sat me down. <laughs> and it was like, you know, I played those kick drum parts for a reason, <laughs> you know, on those records, they're on those records for a reason. You know, and I was like, yes, Mr. Froney, sir. I'm very sorry. Please forgive me. That's amazing. Like, Steve, you're not in a band anymore. <laughs> no, no, he is. He is. Yeah, I, I just felt, I just felt like I didn't want him to be, uh, to feel like I was being disrespectful. I, I was very respectful, you know, mm-hmm. and if I had really known he was in the crowd, I would have played his fills for verbatim. Like I played for the past three years. Like I had played his book on that gig and you know, in the past three years, but I was in LA, a bunch of producers were there and friends and, you know, dare I say people of my generation, you know, and uh, I wanted to play, you know, the music I, w- I wanted to play the kick drum parts the way that night. Mm-hmm. And of course that's the night that Steve was there. <laughs> Such is life, but you know, it's cool. I tell that story to, a couple of my old fr- old school like funky friends and they laugh their asses off They're like that and dad i'm telling the story i, I, I yelled at my steve you know <laughs> that's pretty amazing but, you know, steve, you know, i have the utmost respect for him and, and he's almost 
if Questlove is the godfather of hip hop drumming and and he grew up playing along Steve Farone, what does that make Steve Farone? Mm. The 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 super daddy of hip hop drumming, mm. you know. Um but you know what producers did is and what the MPC gave to dr- to live drumming through Jay Jay Dilla, Pete Rock, DJ Premier, um, Just Blaze, guys like that. What that gave to live drumming was a whole different thing. It went backwards. Like, you know, okay, these are the drum machines of the day, and they were sampling bits and pieces of funk breaks. You know, Public Enemy also with the Bomb Squad, Hank Shockley and Keith Shockley. They would take pieces of different drum loops and place them together and sometimes they wouldn't always line up that became a sound that became a thing you know you take a hi-hat that's from a ballad and then you you set the click to you know to 90s and all of a sudden now those hi-hats are dragging you know so you sampled something that was a much slower tempo but you were you're set the click to to a higher tempo and now you have um, a, a slanky ass hi-hat in between notes. Your downbeats are the same, but the in between, the, t- t- the unaccented hi-hats are now slower than they would be if you had just gone So hip-hop gave something and created a, a rhythmic sort of plate for live drummers to pick from and, and uh, you, know, to un- you know, to add to their vocabulary. Was that due to the limitation of the gear or the limitation of available breaks at the time? I mean, because nowadays you could quantize it. And I mean, if that stuff would have happened now, we never would have got those feels, right? Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, you know, Pete Rock and Dilla were the first to kind of turn the quantize off. Mm. Um, I think Premiere also is kick drum parts or summer sw- swung and summer straight. And you know, it sounds like he played his kick drums. He might have quantized his snares to be you know, on two and four. But hi-hat and kick drum is really where the swing comes from. You know, people talk about moving the snare early. I'm like, why would you keep the snare on time? And just mess around with the swing in between the downbeats. And maybe flam the hi-hat downbeats after the kick and after the snare and see where that takes you. You know, that that's a hip-hop concept. That's not, you know, George Clinton liked it behind the beat. You know, Dennis Chambers talks about the one and the one being big and heavy and, and you still feel the time, the metronomic time, but the one may be slightly underneath it. And that, 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 that last four before the one might be slightly underneath where the metronome is click, 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 you know, and that bass drum, and that you know, that feel is a little dip, you know. So George Clinton definitely, and James was into that that dip in the one, you know, mm. pocket. It's where the idea of a pocket, because it looks like a pocket if you envision it, you know. In in my, that's how I see it. I don't know, explain pocket a thousand different ways, but you know. So I think those guys are the forefathers of of what hip hop drumming is seen as today. There's a huge connection, you know, but, you know, Steve Ferroni is like sort of like the uncle to if Questlove is, you know, the golden child of hip hop drumming, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear that. um, I think you explained that in one of your lessons on Deitch Academy as well. You're talking about that that unquantized kind of feel. Mm -hmm. I often hear, maybe I'm wrong, I hear drummers do the opposite. They might rush the snare. And that that seems to be not the right approach. I mean, right? That might work. I think you know Chris Dave is known for that a little bit, you know. Mm. But I think playing the hi hat late after the snare is what creates the illusion that the snare is early because the hi hat is a higher pitch, mm. and we have a tendency as as human beings to hear that hi hat as the dominant time because it's like right there. But Honestly, the way Chris plays it and you know, he lays it back and the way Questlove plays it, the hi-hat is really kind of draggy and it, it creates the, the illusion that the snare is early. 
in my that's in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Is there um is there one Dilla record that you would say kind of set the template for this vibe? No, that, that's so that's like saying one Miles record or one Coltrane record. You know? <laughs> right, right, it's like I would I would what I honestly for drummers out there go to I go to YouTube and I type in Dilla mix. Mm. And there's like 10 of them or 20 of them. And you put the headphones on, you sit at your drums and just go through as many hours of that as you can. And you're going to find all kinds of different feels. And some aren't that crazy. Some are straighter than you would imagine. Mm-hmm. And they're not to, 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 to everyone's like exaggerating. Yeah. It yeah. Much. Yeah. And sometimes his, his, the way he did it was really subtle, you know, and that's why I like the way, you know, Quest does it. He, he, he cause he's was friends with Dilla and he knows the whole discography. He understands the subtlety in the way Dilla did it, as opposed to the very brazen style that Chris kind of popular, popularized, mm-hmm. you know, now Chris is kind of dialed back on it. But at first, like when he started messing with the Dilla style, it was like, t- you know like triplets on the hat and it was him just like messing with a new feel you know and a new thing and you know now you're hearing with d'angelo you're like oh yeah there it is yeah is there like a a cautionary word for drummers when you start dipping into like how how far is too far and when is it even appropriate to kind of go into that that vibe uh, it's it's song song specific. Mm. Um, if you're writing tunes in that style, or you know, I, I, there's some jam bands messing with that. You know, like there's some there's some like pop acts messing with. You know, there, there's a great book that just came out. Dilla Time. You know about this? No, I have to check it out. It's it's written by a producer, Cat. Forget his name. But he really is explaining Dilla's stuff in in rhythmic, almost like to non-musicians about how the drums swing. Mm. And it's really interesting the way he's breaking it up. He's drawing grids, like like you know. And here's a normal grid with just boxes. Here's a Dilla grid where these lines are closer to each other, you know. And my writer friends and my just my like general hip hop friends are like, wow this is mind melting. Like, and I'm like, I've been talking about this in my clinics for 10 years, you know, like, <laughs> but like the guy visually explained it in a way that no one has visually explained it. And, you know, and I, I did some study, you know, studying with some like Moroccan musicians in New York and a lot of the Moroccan stuff. It's so not metronomic. But they're still filling the quarter note, but it's it's moving around this triplet meets straight thing. Mm-hmm. So like, I I feel that in Dilla stuff, I feel that Moroccan, that North African rolling, you know, and Brazilian. There's some Brazilian funk and Brazilian grooves that are like, check you know, and like they're not perfect and they're not straight eights, but it's funky. Mm-hmm. And Dilla was sampling all this, this stuff, and, and and then he kind of like he absorbed it and started doing it by hand with his fingers, you know. And so it, it's a beautiful art form. I, I advise all drummers and Dilla fans to check out this Dilla Time book. I don't have it yet, but I will soon. When was the acoustic kit brought back into hip hop? I have a hard time pinpointing when the first time I saw a live drummer with a hip hop artist. I think like um, uh, well. You know, the biggest squad. <laughs> well, you know, the biggest uh, hit live drums hip hop song that blew hip hop w- worldwide was Sugar Hill Gang, Rapper's Delight. Um, I heard Dennis Chambers recut that because originally that group was from something else, and then they recut the two. Oh yeah, it was it was Chic Good Times. Mm. And the idea was to use the chic beat and to have two guys from Harlem rap over it. You know, that was like the the big first pop rap song, which was Live Jones, you know, which gives me hope that it'll return to Live mm-hmm. Jones entirely one day. <laughs> I mean, you know, Robert Glass was achieving a lot. 
you know, with all the, the MCs, he's bringing rappers into his fold and, and making sure it's Chris or Justin, um, Justin Tyson on drums, you know, and those guys are very capable of playing like an MPC, you know, like a Dilla record. And then it's up to the engineer to really EQ it right, you know. Um, what was your question again? Yeah, well, like when did the live drummer kind of get back into the hip hop scene? Like I think of like yeah. the early '90s when, when there was kind of like the the hip hop rock meshing. Uh, on the album "Raising Hell" by uh, Run DMC, which was which sold like millions of copies, there's a song called uh, "Perfection" that not a lot of people know, and it's mm-hmm. live drums all the way through. Um, and I always felt like a serious, like I was a serious fan of the song and it kind of me being able to play it in, in elementary school in school band and like the other kids seeing me play it and they're like, Oh, can you play perfection? And I was like, yes, I can. I know it, you know, and it's, it's a go-go beat and you know, go-go music from DC is, is definitely the, the older cousin of hip hop. Mm. Um, it's between funk and hip hop. It's right in that middle place. And bands like Trouble Funk and they they created that boot, got boot, boot, got on, boot, got boot, boot, got on. You know, just that that over and over dependable kick drum pattern, two and four in the snare, some funky hats with a little tri- couple triplets and open hats here and there. And that's what laid the groundwork for early hip hop, a thousand percent. You know, mm. and that's what you know. That's what that song was. You know, Run DMC was basically a perfect. You know, the song "Perfection" was a go-go beat, just slowed down. And also, DJ Yella for NWA played drums on a couple of early NWA cuts. And so that. that those were all big for me. Like those were like I found them. I found like real live drums on a real hip hop record, which is <laughs> mostly machines. You know, and, and it was like the holy grail of, of live drums in, you know, in these are like eighties, late eighties, early nineties. And, and then, and then it was all NPC for, you know, until like, I mean, live drums on, on like popular hip hop records. Yeah. I mean, the rap rock thing was happening, but I never really got too heavy into that. Um, you know, cats would rather sample four bars of Idris Muhammad than have me come in and cut it because of one, the recording quality, um, the kind of mics they used in 1969, the the tape machine, all that, you know. So that's kind of why drum, you know, I was trying, yeah, I listened back to like, you know, I, I got to play on a couple hip hop records, like Quali Tal, Quali. I got to play on a couple of his records, and you know, I listen back. I'm like, you know, the engineer wasn't really, you know, didn't really. I did one thing. We did a Dilla tribute with Russ Elevato, and I don't even know if that came out. But one of the songs came out. It was it was a Mad Lib beat that we played over, and I, I cut drums over it, and that was mixed really well. It's a lot of factors, knowing the, the groove knowing the vibe and the engineer knowing the vibe if all those come together you have live drums and hip-hop but it's really hard for all those things to fall in place Mm -hmm. do you ever use electronics or is it you strictly acoustic uh yeah you know for break science i'm doing all that and coming up with all kinds of electronic drum sounds and um i'll lay electronic drum sounds first then I'll put live drums over that, and then I'll end up taking the kick drum from the live drums out and just leave the snare in the hat and add another giant clap on top of two and four and put an 808 where the kick was or mm. line up 808s to the kick. You know, I, I like the combination of live and electronic drums. I think, you know, I never got into triggers. I feel like I would have been hooked if I did. You know, because I would have got used to like the combo sound, mm-hmm. and uh, but you know, I stayed away from it because it requires a lot. You know, nowadays it's easy. You load your sounds into an SPDX and 
you get two triggers and you go from there. You know, one of the snare, one of the kick, and you're ready to go. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to start doing that soon. I keep saying that year after year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start doing it soon. I'm do, still doing the pads. You know, if I want to 808, I'll just hit it with my pad like that. You know? Okay. And so that's the brake science setup. You might have some pads on stage or use electronics. Yeah, and lettuce. And lettuce. lettuce. We have a trapezoid song, which, I, you know, certain parts of the song, I'm just playing the pad. Mm. And the crowd digs it. And it's a nice switch up from acoustic drums, you know, like, okay, they've been hearing this kit for an hour. Now I'm going to play these pads, which is based off a of Roland TR-808 drum machine, which is the opposite of live drums. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, there's nothing more different. And, and there's nothing more dominant on the radio than 808 drums, you know, and dominant in the world right now. And it's the most non-organic drum sound you could possibly have, you know. Yeah, when and did that just, machine come out? <laughs> what's that? When did that machine come out? It has to be like 40 yeah, years old a, now. Yeah, it's an 80s, definitely an 80s. Yeah, there's a whole documentary on the 808 on YouTube. You look up like 808 doc and you can learn all these things about how it affected music and, you know, where it's where it's at today and people are still doing it and, and still evolving that. And it's like, I'm hoping that live drums, you know, like this guy, AJ Hall, you heard AJ Hall yet? Does like live drumming for rap records. Like he makes loop drum loops for rap, for rap records, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's really got his studio dialed where it sounds like old, you know, super amazing old breaks. And, and, uh, and then there's some artists like, uh, Benny the Butcher and Griselda, who are signed by Jay Z, they're blowing up, and most of their beats are are live drum samples and not 808s. Which mm-hmm. I'm like, God, it's finally somebody popular is using live drums. You know, yeah. <laughs> whether, whether they're a sample breakbeat or my friend AJ or whatever, like it's a it's a kick and a snare and record dust. You know. Mm which I'd rather hear at this point, but I love 808s too. You know, I break science. We use that. Sometimes you just want to cut, you want that 808 and you want that high pitch snare, you know, and you know, I used the, I, I've been using the stack claps a lot, mm. which uh, really have become a can't leave home without it sort of situation. Yeah. I see that everywhere. That's, that's kind of replaced some of the other tricks of like putting the splash on the snare and some other stuff. Yeah, I did that for years. I did the splat and it kept moving and falling off and flying <laughs> off the snare, you know. So now you could hit the snare and well, I used to I used to hit the the, the splash on the snare and the side snare at the same time, mm. or put the splash on the side snare and hit them both at the same time, you know, it's, it's bat, it's mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And now I just do that with the stack clap and the snare. It's, and now I move the stack clap to next to my hi hat, so you know if I'm doing I, it's easier to get. It's like right there, as opposed mm. to going across my body and going. That's where everyone else. That's where I was setting it up on my right side, you know. And now I find it's kind of easier to get to, and I'm less. It's less less movement and more economic to do it on, my, on the left side. Does that um, negate the need for the pad? With hand claps, or you have that there as well? Oh, uh, the pad's all the way on my left, like behind the hi-hat, like on the side here. Okay. Stack clap is between the crash symbol and the hi-hat and the, and, and, and the rack top. Mm-hmm. So it's right in there. I, I got to race the crash up a little higher to get it in there. Right. <laughs> but uh, it's really working. I, I did that setup on the last couple lettuce tours, and it feels really natural. Sweet. All right. So let's talk snare drums for a couple of minutes, then we'll wrap it up. <clears throat> if I said I need a classic James Brown breakbeat sound, what what drum would you grab, and then how would you tune it and treat it? Uh, it's hammer. <laughs> what material? Uh, <laughs> you know, they know about the Acrolyte. They know about you know the beauty of the Ludwig stuff, and they you know and all that classic sounds, you know, 
what what's the Ludwig one? It's not the Superphonic. I mean, the, the, the Acrolyte's one of them. What, what's the, what's the real the, the Superphonic? The Superphonic, yeah. Mm. Like, but I feel like Tamra just up the ante with lugs that don't move. That you know, and they're the throw-offs are the best. And this is a cool Tamra commercial, but <laughs> um, everyone always asks me, like people here, my recording they're like oh what is that the acrylate or is that the you know super fine i'm like no you know it's like uh they were sending me the slp models are great like they sound mm-hmm. amazing people always think they're vintage snares it's like no i just beat the head up until it sounds old and ah and that's the trick it. it's got to be a, yeah, it's a, lot, a lot of it's like head. you know a lot of it's like a brand new head might be too rangy mm-hmm and um, you got to kind of get get hit that paint out the middle of it, you know, for a while until it deadens the head a little bit, and you need less tape. And you know, the goal is to get it to a point where you don't need tape. It has a little bit of ring, and uh, it's nothing muting the head. Mm. But, you know, as opposed to like, Ding! it's like, Ding! you know, like that perfect amount, you know. Now, what about like a like a seventies punchy vibe? Would you use the same drum, or would you swap it out? Well, I, I, back then, you know, I obviously use a, a, a deeper drum, um, but now with, with a big fat snare drum, mm-hmm. like, are you kidding me? Like, what right. an amazing invention! You know, <laughs> right. like, you know, especially if you're on a gig and. You know, you're you go you're playing funky jumper one minute with the high snare, and the next tune they call is like uh, Billy Jean or something. You're on a mm-hmm. wedding gig. You got to play Billy Jean now. Throw that big fat snare drum on. You know, it's right there. So it it kind of saves a lot of you know if you don't want to bring multiple drums to a gig or or a session. You know, yeah. So that that, that that's a definite go to in the studio for me. Is your, does your cymbal setup change much? Um, a little bit. I, I just got some uh, some Karopes. I was using the K's with lettuce for mm. a while. And they were feeling too bright. And I feel like the guys were getting annoyed with the, the bell or the cymbal really cutting. And I wanted them because they cut through a big band. And now, like, we have the the symbols mic'd and everyone's got ears and it's like, I don't think I need to cut through anymore. I think mm. I need to blend a little more with the guys, you know? So, uh, I really, I really dig the Karopes with, for their dark blend of the bells, not piercing anyone. And, uh, when you play them, you know, you crash on one. It's not like this, like, uh, it's like, it's a nice, it's a nice vibe that sounds good in your ears and doesn't distract the musicians from their solos. If I start playing crashes and doing stuff, you know, mm. they're not freaking out. Sweet. Um, last question. The Deitch Academy. Um, what was the, the reason for developing that and, and um, how often are you going to be updating it? Um, I update it all the time. Um, I have, again, part of my videos that I have to download are all lessons that I just do on my phone when I'm feeling inspired for a lesson. Um, mm. I teach the way I like to learn a little background, talk about the, the history of that particular beat, the drummers that influence this beat. I kind of have like a system with that. You know, I want you to know the whole thing where I got it from and and uh, I just really enjoy teaching and, and and I've been right there with incorporating hip hop and funk and drum bass and electronic and, and all that sort of stuff for a while now and I like to to share that. I think going to the grave with it is is a waste. Mm. You know, like, listen to my records if you want to learn. You know, like, that's how a lot of cats are. I'm like, no, I, I like to break it down and show you where it came from. And, 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 and you know, it makes 
you know, it, it just demystifies a little bit and, and lets people understand what you're thinking when you go into that sort of bag. It's really cool. I've, I've dug through the whole thing twice already, so I've learned a lot. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you're, so you're saying put some more in videos. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, come on, man. I need some more. <laughs> okay. I, I, no, for real, I, I mean to get in. I, don't, I mean, I had last month off. I couldn't record 30 of them. But um, it's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely knock those out. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, right on. So are you hitting the road soon? How should people uh, keep up to date with what you're doing? Yeah, Lettuce Funk, www.lettucefunk.com is where the bulk of my touring is. Mm-hmm. Um, everything around that will be like an Instagram post. So just follow me, Deitch Adam, at Deitch Adam on Instagram. Um, I'm also real Deitch Beats on Twitter. I, I, I just, you know, say random things on Twitter and also announce gigs and stuff like that. <laughs> Facebook is mainly just uh, for friends and family, you know, mm. and, uh, you know, asking questions. But, uh, you know, Instagram has got all the things that are outside of um, lettuce. But uh, I should have a master Deitch calendar that people can access. It probably does exist somewhere, but I'm not quite sure where. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of stuff moving in, you know. A lot of moving parts with that. And that's it for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Adam. Again, go check out his educational site, Deitch Academy, and then also take a listen to all of his bands, Lettuce, the Adam Deitch Quartet, Rig Science, any number of things. He's always got something that works. So can make sure you go to his website, like he said, and, and follow what he's doing. And if you dig the show, please uh, drop us a review over on iTunes, wherever you get your podcast, five-star rating. All this helps us get into more feeds so more drummers can see us all around the world and that's it for this week so we'll see you next week have a good one